Good morning. It's good to see all of you again. If uh, you don't know who I am, my name is Dallas Bergeson. I am the lead pastor just across the street at Mac Free, and just really uh, glad to be here this morning. Glad to be able to talk with some of you. Um, so when I was uh, 12 years old, I lived in the middle of nowhere uh, in the farm country of northern Iowa, and I know some of you come from you know, Houston or, or Denver, bigger places like that, and you think this is the middle of nowhere, but I promise you that you have to drive like three hours toward Colorado before you can even see nowhere from there, and I lived in an area like that, um, so, but I grew up in this tiny town, I grew up in a tiny church, a little free Methodist church, uh, and when I was 12 years old, someone from my church invited this older gentleman, really he and his wife, to come as evangelists to our little church, and, and this gentleman spent an evening, it might have been two, I don't remember anymore, 12 years old was a long time ago for me, uh, and he would preach, he preached from the freakiest parts of the book of Revelation to us, and, and I gotta say, honestly, that I'm so thankful for people who will find the directions to nowhere in order to make sure that people that God loves in nowhere have, are able to have a come to Jesus with Jesus, and I, I really had that at 12 years old. This couple was kind. I think the, the guy was kind of more the preacher there, but they were kind. They were effective, at least for me, and they spoke specifically uh, about the book of Revelation, and they did that thing that a lot of people did back in those days, which was to say, you know, ask this question, if, if you were to die today, would you be going to heaven, all right? And, and this message or messages, whatever it was, they were done well enough, at least, that it brought me to a place where I felt like I needed to choose. I needed to decide, like, would I be going to heaven or, or whatever? Uh, would I keep prioritizing the things my 12-year-old self thought were super important? <coughs> Girls, right? Like, that's what I was thinking about all the time. Or, or would I get some more eternal things kind of up toward the top, the very top of the pile for me? And, and so here's what that actually looked like for 12-year-old me. Uh, the evangelist had made his point very clearly that Jesus could come at any time, any time. could be right now, it could be tomorrow, whatever. And so I was really just kind of pleading with God uh, at that point, and I was like, Lord, um, I really do think it would be good if you came back, you would fix a lot of things. Uh, you know, or if, if I died or whatever, that would be good. Um, but uh, I was just wondering if you could possibly wait um, I, until I've gone to my first junior high dance. Uh, this is kind of important to me. And because um, there will be girls there, Lord, and I potentially will have the opportunity to maybe touch one of them at all for the first time ever. It, that would just be kind of really nice if you could wait for a little bit longer. So this is where I was at developmentally for everyone to kind of understand. This is where my brain was as a 12-year-old. Some of you are still there, right? Um, <laughs> there it all, okay. And I tell you all this to say, first of all, that I'm very grateful for the way that God really got to me through an older guy uh, in my hormone-crazed adolescentness, and it really was important. Uh, this step I was taking was a really important one for me to make. I had other steps that came later on. But also, I mentioned this moment in my life because while the Lord absolutely used it, He absolutely used this elderly couple to speak to me in a way that I could understand. It's something I could firmly grasp at the time. I think at the same time, 
it became for me this instructive moment for, for me a, a while on. I would end up answering the call to full-time ministry about five years after this, and then it was quite some time after that that I began to get kind of a, a glimpse of something uh, through this moment, this 12-year-old moment, uh, and that something was this, all right? I was drawn into the kingdom by a sincere but in my opinion now, at least, slightly misguided premise about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus. That the good news has everything to do, this is, this is kind of what was preached. The good news has everything to do with the, this apocalyptic catastrophe that I personally was avoiding by saying yes to Jesus' work on the cross for me. That the good in it. The hopeful thing about Jesus is that he protects you, he shields you, he sort of plucks you from something very ultimate and ultimately irreversible that happens to everyone who doesn't believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. For them, in the way that that was preached, that was kind of the whole good news. And really, I, I'm grateful for people who have already seen the bad in life, preparing younger people, naive ones, for the heartbreak that is inevitable when we walk the walk that we are all going to walk. I believe that's part of older people's responsibility to younger people. And I can't say that the information that they exposed me to was necessarily inaccurate. But what I can say is that the good news is a whole lot better than just that. Do you know what I'm talking about? It is a whole lot better than that. Hope has to have more content than that if it is going to be a truly animating force in our life if it is going to be life-giving if it is going to motivate any human being like you or like me whether you are 5 or 12 whether you are 21 or 42 whether you are 60 or 80 years old God's got more hope than what he saved us from there is a whole other level and it's a significant one and it keeps building on itself for what he has saved us for. And that additional hope is for this space on earth now. That hope gets to be thrown into effect far sooner than just when we die or when Jesus comes back. I'd like you to pick up this morning, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's a little to the right. If you just go right in the middle of your Bibles and you go, uh, you probably land in Psalms. Uh, Jeremiah's a little ways to the right, but it's one of the big ones, and so you'll, you'll find it fairly quickly, I think. Um, and then we're going to want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and, and some of you who are church kids already think you know where I'm heading with this, Jeremiah 29. We'll see. But Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1 is where we're going to start. This is a passage that comes right after something truly, truly devastating had happened for God's people in the Old Testament. They had been pushing their luck with God for way too long, even after almost a quarter of a Bible's worth of warnings to these guys called the prophets, people like Jeremiah. And so now here in Jeremiah, there's nothing left but the crying. So they, you know, the way they talk about that. And, and, and by the, this time, most of God's people have been shipped off and shipped out of their land, all but the very weakest and the poorest were left there. And this is by the design of the Babylonian king who has taken them over. He, he figured, and a lot of other uh, people at that time figured out, if we take people out of their land, they're not comfortable there, they don't know what's going on, we'll put them somewhere they don't know what's going on, and we've got them. We, we can keep them kind of pushed down to the ground. And so now other people 
are coming to live in the houses and to run the farms and to occupy the towns that had been filled with these people, God's people's great-great-great-great-grandparents all the way down for generations. And all of a sudden, there are new people living in these places. So I want you to imagine you coming back to school like you guys just have. And then in the spring when the school year's over, you go back home for the summer and somebody else is living in your house. Somebody else is running the local grocery store. And when you ask where your family is and where your friends are, they say, maybe try like three states away. You get in the picture? This is what Jeremiah is writing a letter to in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to hit a bunch of names here right at the beginning. Don't worry about it. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, uh, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. All right? This is what Jeremiah's letter said to these people who were being carted off to Babylon. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the produce that they might marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren multiply do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where i sent you into exile pray to the lord for its welfare for its welfare will determine your welfare this is what the lord of heaven's armies the god of israel says do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the in the land of babylon trick you Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. Imagine if this was being preached to you right now today and this was for you, that the next 70 years will not look like what you think they're going to look like. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. So again, just just think about the, the like, You guys are just like on the cusp and ready to go out of here to do the things that you were planning on. And all of a sudden, nope, sorry, that's not going to be the plan anymore. And as you think about that, I want you to think about this. The reformer and the pastor and the hymn writer, Martin Luther, once said, Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. And I know I'm just guessing. I don't know you guys real, real well, at least not most of you. But I still think it's safe to say that if some of the people in this room knew that tomorrow everything would just 
completely fall apart. Like what has already happened by this time in, in Jeremiah 29. Some of y'all would not be planting no blooming apple tree, right? Like, uh-uh. Is this accurate? Yeah. That, I think I know that a lot of us would not be able, at least not easily, to shift into the mental and the emotional, the, the spiritual headspace it would take to say that you've, the thing you've known for your whole life is no longer a thing anymore, that your whole existence is going to look completely different than what you thought. And not only that, will that shift, but in order for you to get where you not only probably want to go, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but where God says you need to go with your life, you're going to have to pray for the blessing and the prosperity of the people who took your world away. Because when they do well, then you'll do well. And you're like, I think this is where a lot of people say, nah, dog. <laughs> no. And the reason we wouldn't be planting apple trees is because we'd be devastated. Some of us would just be mad, ready to start a militia like I used to have up in you know, Michigan. <laughs> There's so many people. like Whatever we'd be, but also because to do what Jeremiah is saying God's people need to do, that would take hope. And some of us, whether we grew up with the Lord or not, whether we grew up in the church or not, we don't actually have a functioning hope working in our lives right now. For some of us, the way that we live our lives is just for the next three minutes, maybe for the next few hours, but then after that, I don't know. And see, that's where I feel like, hang with me here, okay? That's where... A, when all is said and done, when a role is called up yonder only perspective on hope, on, on good news, that's where that fails us. Where we just have to bear it out for the next however many years, the next 70 years, just biding our time until Jesus comes back or until we go to heaven. That's not going to work. That kind of theology simply runs out of food for a long game faith. We simply got no motivation to do all the stuff it's going to take in the middle, if you know what I'm saying. Because in that theological world that I encountered when I was 12 years old, we are really only prepared to do, maybe have a few hasty, sometimes ill-advised conversations with people who happen to be closest to us about getting right with Jesus, even if we have taken zero time to cultivate the relationship that would help us to understand what getting right with Jesus even means for them. So we have some hasty conversations, but then we expect that everything's all going to go in the garbage can anyway. Folks, that's not the whole hope of the gospel. And frankly, if you read through the Bible, it's a slap in the face to the faith of those who were in the Bible, who, those listed in Hebrews chapter 11, who persevered through some stuff, who trusted God not just with the end of the game, but with every detail of every play from here until then. Hope is something that ought to inspire us to something more than negativity and throwing in the towel. Do you agree? Jeremiah tells his people to forget about those who say that things are going to get better soon. And he says, basically, plant a tree. Can your faith bear un up under that? He says you got to get your life going. 
even if it's less than ideal, even if it's not what your parents and your grandparents had going for them. He says to figure out how to pray, get close to your God in these kinds of trials. He says figure out how to bless when you don't really feel like blessing. And then point those prayers of blessing toward the ones who are occupying you, who are pushing you down in the dirt. Because the prosperity of those who occupy you will become your prosperity. That is a hard pill to swallow. But there is a confidence, a steely focus in all this for Jeremiah. He says it's going to be 70 years, get comfortable. He says you don't have to worry about tomorrow anymore. You're looking at what you can do for your grandkids now. And some of them didn't even have kids yet. He's saying they're going to be fine when they're your age. And you're going to be fine if you stop looking at the way circumstances are right now and if you start living in the direction of the way things are going to be. That is hope. He says hope isn't like hope we talk about a lot of times. Hope in the Bible is saying this is going to happen. So start living in that direction. You can put it in the bank let me just say this too. God's not overlooking the injustices in any of this, by the way. What the Babylonians are doing is not okay. He's not letting them slide. He's not saying, this is fine. He's saying, trust me. Watch me in this. Be patient with me in this. I love one translation I found where it says, when Babylon's full 70 years are completed, the Lord is actually counting the years. He does not forget it says i will take up your cause it is i who knows the plans i have made for you to give you the future you believe it or not hope for when i was you guys' age uh, going to school here taking classes i was pretty angsty you know i i come right out of the end of the generation x probably like a lot of your parents do so we were kind of known at one time for living in perpetual existential agony all the time. We were where grunge came from. Uh, I don't know if our college students still angsty. Is this still a thing? I should be asking somebody who was there. But uh, Anyway, I was, I, was, I was kind of an amateur musician, and, and part of that meant that I, I wrote songs that we'd play in a couple of bands I was in. We'd travel around a little bit. Uh, playing some of these songs. Nobody came to these shows. Uh, and there was some real melancholy, some dark, some not so sure, tied up in the writing of these songs. But even way back then, the progression that the Lord had already begun to work in my life since about a teenager, since he'd called me into ministry, even since 12 years old, the work of the Spirit, but also the little steps of, of my doing my best to respond to the work of the Spirit meant that as honest as I was trying to be in this song, that, that bad things do happen, I was trying not to butter over all the hard things that I saw in life, I, I also couldn't finish a song without recognizing, yeah, but, but still. I couldn't allow the heartbreaking words to be the last words. I couldn't do it. The Lord wouldn't let me do it. Hope always has to have the final word. 
And that stubborn habit of mine in the Lord, something you'll see all the time in the scriptures. You'll see it in, in the Psalms where, where David will just let loose for however many verses. And he said, yet I will trust in the Lord. That same stubborn habit has carried me in being a pastor now for, for quite a few years. I have seen some things in ministry. I've walked through some things with people that would, that should break your heart into a million pieces. Some of you are probably living stuff, just like I'm talking about right now. Things do get dark, which is why we have to discipline ourselves to plant the tree, to do things that look ridiculous and overwhelming circumstances. You've got to make your bed again. You've got to set the table one more time when you're thinking, what's the point? You have to live into the future and read that book. You have to trust God when he leads you and you don't know how to drum up another ounce of emotional energy to take on another seemingly lost cause that comes to you because you know the God of hope. And I'm going to tell you that the opposition does not always come just from people outside of the faith. It often comes too often from those who are on the inside who already are thinking that this is the world is headed to hell in a handbasket. Let it go. Something happened a lot of decades ago in America that caused a lot of otherwise faithful Christian people to get really pessimistic about what God wants to do here on earth before Jesus comes back. And so in this spiritual pessimism, all the hope talk gets pushed all the way to when the credits are rolling on our lives rather than, so what's the next step now, Lord? Give me the next step. I want to see what you want to do because I'm here for that. That's how we can live, how we should live. God can do a lot with you if that's where your heart is or if it's a place where you're fighting to make sure your heart stays. I just want to say that I have never been opposed to anybody telling it like it is. I hear that a lot. But what I am opposed to this morning and what I think you need to be opposed to is not believing the whole story of the good news of Christ. It is for now, not just for later. G.K. Chesterton once said something about fairy tales, that if we're in the wrong frame of mind this morning, we're going to totally miss what he's saying, okay? Some in our Christian culture have no place for fairy tales because the kind of foundation we have come to be convinced is the only one available to us in Scripture always seems to come down to eking out a faith existence just by the skin of our teeth until the last day. But Chesterton, who was a, a godly man, found fairy tales and fiction to be often more true than what have seemed like the facts of this world that have then been filtered down into our Christian faith, our Christian worldview, and we don't realize it. And so we get pessimistic, just like the world. But this is what he said. He said, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. If you've never heard it before, that is what really good news sounds like. And that's what hope specializes in. I don't think the answer to our world's problems is for us as Christians to retreat from those problems. It, by saying everything's going to hell anyway, 
So just cut your losses, cut the anchors, scoop up as many people to take to heaven with you as you can and abandon ship. I think the answer is to walk toward the problems. Believing God has something to say about them now. Even when we don't exactly know yet what he does have to say. That's part of trusting. That's part of faith. That's part of following the Holy Spirit. It's to live a life of faith that trusts in the inherent goodness of God who is able to turn any lost cause into the solution to a thousand other people's insurmountable lost causes. It's to stop focusing where everybody else is focusing on the dragons and instead to have the patience to start hunting down where do dragons live? What do they eat? How do they go about terrorizing? It's about finding yourself a house and a spouse where you will someday raise a bunch of dragon slayers who will in turn raise even more dragon slayers. The book of Romans has all these incredible building blocks that help us learn what it means to live like this, live in hope every day. And look, it's not really about the information that's out there. It's not necessarily about the verses that we know that we can stack up in a debate against some theoretical enemy of the truth. It's about the spiritual power and the spiritual perspective, the present tense hope that soaks all of these verses in Romans, becoming the thing that saturates how you live every moment of your life. Hear what Paul says in all these places in Romans. For in this hope, you are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Romans 12, 12 says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Real hope isn't ready to throw everything in the trash. It's ready to build. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. If God has given you hope in your life, then start praying toward it and start planning it. Invest in somebody like somebody invested in you. Don't you dare take the easy way out. Even if Jesus does come back this afternoon, he himself said his father will be looking for those who have been busy about his work. Romans again, this time Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The Holy Spirit helps us with hope. He reminds us of hope. He fills us so that that endurance doesn't always feel like something we're enduring so thankful and I can tell you story after story of not just individuals but whole groups of people who have come around because the Lord gave them a sense of hope through the Holy Spirit. I've watched it again and again. And so we can learn to endure through some difficult stuff but at the same time, almost ironically, the Spirit gives us the ability through hope to not waste anything. When death and sin can steal so much from us, it becomes so important that we make every moment count in the Lord. Scripture tells us to not live like those who don't have hope because you do have it. 
very least, you have been placed at this school to be witnesses of some people and how they live their lives, of some, of some moments to encounter the real presence of a God who is your hope. And all you have to do because, uh, because of that is reach out to him and receive it by the Spirit's power. Wherever you come from, stop looking at what's immediately in front of you, the circumstances that tend to tie us down, and take a moment to look 70 years into the future we already know there are dragons. Take the time to learn what it means for God to make you into somebody that kills them instead of just avoiding them. Take the time to plant a tree, plant a good one, a lasting one. Maybe someday your grandkids, maybe somebody else's grandkids will be able to stop and rest in that tree's shade for just a minute. 